Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the April issue of the Delicious Podcast with me, Julie Smith, and we've got sunshine in our soul. We're off to Rome and Venice to talk about their respective food cultures, and we're breaking bread for Easter with the flour that keeps on giving. We'll find out what Chef Theo Randall's superpower would be in his slice of my life, and we're tasting rose-soaked brioche in the test kitchen. But first, editor Karen Barnes on what's in the magazine this month. Well, it's spring. Our cover is green and fresh and bright. Um, There are two things that I absolutely love in this issue, which fall within our theme of... um, It's called the inspiration issue, this one. And I think it's it's a bit of an unusual one for us because we always have a lot of heart and soul in Delicious, as you know. But when we were planning this one, we were everything we were thinking about and suggesting seemed to be sparked from memories and experiences. Mm. So we thought, let's make a virtue of it. And my favourite feature, which I'm flicking through our mocked-up copy of the issue before it's printed, is um, a feature called Secret Histories, which is... Well, it's it's really about what the headline says, but it's about the stories behind various famous dishes like mm. omelette Arnold Bennett. And uh, Arnold Bennett? Well, yes. You're, I'm not going to tell you now because you've got to read the the uh, April issue to find out. And things like carpaccio and nachos, all of these classic recipes have a story behind them so we tell the story and then we recreate the recipe with a slight twist to it so that there's something a bit different mm, um, a little bit like Valentina Harris talking about panettone panettone in last month's podcast exactly like that and we also have a sidebar on a sidebar is a magazine speak for a, a box of extra stuff on the page <laughs> what I call takeout uh, it's on the fake news of food because <laughs> there are a lot of fake stories behind recipes as well and this is uh, there are some really interesting facts in there um, but the other feature that links very much into this one but with a, a different theme is a feature all about memories from the delicious team talking either about a particular item in the kitchen that um, has special memories attached to it or it a person or a smell or a recipe that reminds them of a person and um, my particular one is uh, I'm just showing you here a picture of a beautiful bread tin which has um, my family surname on the side of it because my granddad was a baker and 
this tin is my most treasured possession and it must be 60 or 70 years old and when you bake a loaf in it it has the family name it comes out with a name on Amazing. the side um, the bakery sadly is no more but I tell the story of that inside and we've created a saffron loaf because that was one of the things that was baked in the Cornish bakery that my grandfather ran but we also have um, stories about some very special chips and a stir fry by Hugh our deputy chief sub um, it's the pan that he one of the first things he ever bought and he it uses it again and again and again and we have a pan cookie by Jen which reminds her of her mother and this is one giant cookie all cooked in one pan with ice cream melting it over the top and the idea is that you dive in but the stories are there with the food and it's very special indeed I think I know that one I've got a, the gravy saucepan from my parents have you? used it only this last weekend these treasures no. they never let us down and they, I think what I describe them as is a, a bit like a sensory DNA that runs through us and shapes Absolutely. the way we think about food and about what we're going to teach other people how I, to cook. I totally agree. I mean, you know, I do cook my mother's gravy in that saucepan because I can't not. I can hear her telling me how to, you know, top, skim the top and then put the cold water on to make it nice and shiny. So you think about her every time you use it. Yeah. That's what makes it special. Now, I've been to Rome this spring to stay in a very special villa in the middle of the city where guests are encouraged to live like locals, using the house as if it were their own and following the advice of its owner, Andrea Spalletti Trevelli, on what to do and where to eat. When in Rome, Andrea told me, you need to eat like he does. Well, when it comes to Roman food, you're usually going for very traditional. So in the sense that the, the Roman cuisine is very poor because Rome wasn't a rich city. And the tradition is awful, is interiors, is the tongue, it's the tail. So nothing too fancy. Mm, and certainly uh, not for vegetarians. Definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. We're very big meat eaters. And, uh, and the thing is that there's no real... People try to turn Roman food into fancy food. But honestly, in my opinion, it doesn't work. Roman food has to stay traditional, trattoria-style food. Yeah. Cheap and good. And here at Villa Spalletti Trevelli, I mean, all the recipes come from your family recipes, don't they? That's, That's what we try to do. It's however grand this beautiful, ah, what do you call this, a salon uh, is. Salon, yeah. yeah. No, the thing is we try to give that traditional twist. Again, we're, me, my family, my, my sister, we're all fans of tradition. And honestly, when it comes to Italian food and Roman food especially, it's all about that. And here what we try to do is bring on our own tradition. So our family's tradition, my great-great-grandmother's chef tradition, that he, was, he lived with her for, I think, over 50 years. So he was practically part of the family at, at, at that point. Yeah. And we try to repropose that. And same goes for the Roman cuisine. And I think the best restaurants in Rome are those who still manage 40, 50 years after they opened with all the tourism, the masterism. Unfortunately, without any snobbish meaning, but a bit of ignorance that kicked in. Mm. People who really don't know or understand what Roman cuisine is all about. Is that the people who are coming in to cook for the tourists or the tourists uh, themselves? The tourists themselves, and then obviously a lot of restaurants will adjust to that. If I come here as a tourist, not staying with you and not mm -hmm. being shown around, around with you, I find it very difficult to find the food. Oh, it's a jungle. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, it's absolutely a jungle. So what should tourists look for? Tough question. In the sense that if they're going by themselves or relying on sites like TripAdvisor and you know, but it's all completely random. So something I love you might hate and vice versa. So it doesn't make sense to rely on people's ad advice when it sure. comes to food. Unfortunately in a touristic city like Rome, especially in the city centre, a lot of tourist restaurants that are 
not awful, mm -hmm. but not even authentic or traditional or really good. And you end up stay eating in a place that's you and the only tourists around you and it will ruin your Roman experience. It won't make you feel Roman for so, that so night or that stay. Look for Romans. Look for, look for Romans is always a, a, good, a good option, but it's not a very easy to find them because on the other side, Roman restaurants and chefs of Roman restaurants are not very good at promoting themselves, so they, which is on the other side very good for us locals because yeah. so obviously keep, they keep it not becoming that famous, they still manage to keep that authenticity, that yeah. tradition. Yeah and the right price for the right quality. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why, for example, one of my favorite places is Dalili, where I think in, well, it's, it's 15 years now since I started going there, probably met one foreign couple, maybe two mm -hmm. in, in 15 years. And, uh, and it's always been the, 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 the cook, his wife, taking care of the, of the customers, he's in the kitchen. It doesn't get more Roman than them in the city center. So I'm talking city center because obviously the moment you step out of the touristic areas, everything becomes local. Mm -hmm. But in the center where it's very difficult, this is steps from the from the Trastevere areas, which is one of the most touristy from Campo dei Fiori. They still manage to keep their little hidden oasis of Romanity, of Romanita, we call it. And uh, and the, and the food is just the, the give vine. Me an example. Oh, pff, they have probably the most amazing, for example, pasta con le frattaglie which are the, the, the chicken interiors, or the, well, sorry, with the rigaglia, not frattaglia, they have the coda la vaccinara, which is the oxtail done with the tomato sauce, which is incredible, the tripe. The, the, obviously, then the traditional, so the matriciana, the carbonara, the gricia are just to die for. So it's very traditional, very local things, local produce, great things, 20, 30 euros max mm -hmm. is what you're gonna spend. Yeah. Service is very local, again, it's very homey, so the, 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 there's no formality whatsoever. Romans don't know how to be formal. We're very outgoing, we're very relaxed, and we don't care about, you know, what, what the scheme should be. We'll just be very, very friendly with whoever you are. You might be the President of the United States, or Andres Palletti will treat you exactly the same way. And you can follow the links to his top five restaurants on the blog, Andrea's Foodie Postcard from Rome, at deliciousmagazine.co.uk. Now, before we leave Italy, let's linger in Venice for a moment with finalist for the Jane Grigson Trust New Food Writer Award, Sky McAlpine, who grew up in the city and still lives there with her family. Her stunning new book, A Table in Venice, is the story of her life there through her recipes. And I asked her if learning to eat was the first language she learned. It really is a way of speaking the, the, the local language. And I think because I grew up with these recipes and eating in friends' homes, you know, all my school friends were, were Venetian, so I'd kind of go back to their house and their mother would cook and I'd be in the kitchen with them. It sort of become part, so much part of my life. I think it's a funny thing if when you're from one place and live in another is you never really know what you are. You have no real fixed national identity. Yes. But I, for me, that's been a good thing. Yes, and, and interestingly, a lot of people I speak to uh, start to cook food from their homeland when they've been displaced. So I wonder how that works for, with you living in two different places. Well, funnily enough, I think the time when I really started to learn how to cook, as in to put a meal from start to finish on the table by myself was when I came to university in England and I found myself gravitating towards wanting to make those dishes that I would eat at home and the food that was so good and really missing that yeah. and feeling the need to recreate it yeah. in my student kitchen. Yeah. Uh, um, so I think that's where my real 
interest in cooking and not just eating really started. But the food from Venice. Now, I, as I was reading your book, I realised that I hadn't a clue. I really <laughs> didn't know what Venetian food was. Well, I think Venetian food gets a bit of a bad rap. I think partly because Venice is such a magical, enchanting city from both a historical and architectural point of view. So it's very easy to come to Venice and gorge on Tintorettos and Carpaccios and Titians and leave very happy and not really have paid much attention to the food. But the food as through all of Italy is, as you say, the language of the people who live there. And more than anything, for me, it's how the city comes to life. It is worth sort of moving past those um, little trattoria catering to the tourist trade that you would sort of obviously fall upon and really trying to investigate what, how you can eat well. So the focus of the book really is home cooking and it's the recipes that we make at home or that I ate in friends' homes or I did a lot of research from old traditional Venetian cookbooks written in dialect and kind of looking at those recipes. But you, what is wonderful about good Italian restaurants is that they are like an extension of the home. The really good restaurants for me are not the smart or chic ones. They're the ones where it's a family run, where the mother will be in, the mother and the daughter will be in the kitchen, the father will be front of house. And so they will cook, the food that they eat is kind of home cooking. Give us an example. So, for example, I love, um, well, our local pizzeria, which is just around the corner from where we live. It's called Pizzeria da Paolo, and it's a very unchic establishment. And But Paolo is completely enchanting, and it's a completely family-run business, and Odina cooks in the kitchen, and you can go there and look at their menu, and they're probably like 50 different varieties of pizza. Or you can go in and say, Paolo, cosa mangiate oggi? Cosa mangiamo oggi? What are you eating today? And he'll bring you the incredible pasta that he's having for his family dinner there in the restaurant and then he'll bring out you know I don't know some fantastic razor clams and some lovely vongole and say oh we've got some moeke the little um, soft shell crabs they just came in today have some of these so kind of you really need to I think engage with the waiters and with the restaurants and sort of say what what should I eat what 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 do you recommend I have Paolo would feel a whole load of delicious readers (laughs) Paolo what are you eating today I think he'd be thrilled (laughs) I dare you to try it it's a very beautiful book and you took the photographs I did I did thank you that's very kind of you (laughs) it really is I mean the pages for the recipes are salmon pink which is your signature color I'm looking at your your fridge and I'm looking at your walls here and this this sort of reflects your blog as well yeah I mean I love pink I've I've always loved pink it drives my mother mad actually Uh, she never let me wear pink as a little girl and um, all I ever wanted as a result was a pink dress and now I have a pink book and a pink house and (laughs) pink life so but it's also it's kind of a reflection I think Venice is quite a pink city there's that kind of lovely faded colour to the plaster of the walls um, but has sort of those soft shades of dirty dirty pink to it yeah it's a beautiful book and it opens it gives a different layer to to venice um i'm wondering if people reading it and then going for a holiday in venice would have a completely different experience is that what you wanted Uh, that's what i really wanted i hope so i think venice it's such a funny city because there's such a huge tourist industry i think it's over 20 million visitors a year and a population of about 50 thousand people and there's been a lot of talk recently about um, 
tourism and what what's a kind of response what is responsible tourism and i think if we could fill venice with people who are excited to be there and interested in the people who live there and the life there and the food that we cook there and what we do there that would be a wonderful wonderful thing it would be a real privilege to have been a part of that in some way ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, April is about Easter, Passover, and breaking bread with family and friends. But what's in your loaf? Michael Hansen is a third-generation baker who's taking bread-making back to basics with Bread for Life. Growing his wheat from 90-year-old heritage seeds and raising money from the flour to those living on the breadline. I joined him as he sent his very first shipment of the flour off to market and asked him what heritage seeds are. Heritage grains are really varieties that are before the, the Green Revolution, which was in the 60s. But you can go back up until really the sort of 50s where agriculture really started to change in this country. Mm -hmm. We, my colleague and I, John Letts, he's an archaeobotanist, he discovered these grains and we've collected them and he's collected them. Where from? Well basically from seed banks around the world, some of the seed banks in the Middle East. Modern seeds are um, very different to the old open pollinated seeds. Mm. Less and, natural, shall we say? Uh, yeah, very. They don't need the inputs, right. precisely. Yeah. And when you're talking inputs, you're talking about being grown I intensively uh -huh. with chemicals. Yes. Yeah. So the old varieties of seeds, because of their very nature, because they're old, these are pre-1930s, mm -hmm. they they, were, they just grew really well without yeah. the fertilizers and the chemicals. Mm -hmm. And so they're the type of seeds that we find. I was actually collected some seeds, some ancient heritage wheat in Georgia, which is actually the home of wheat. It's the home of wine, but it's also the home of wheat. And I was over there in November and some of those seeds I've brought back and I'm gonna be planting those locally along with my other heritage varieties. 
So, so you grow it. You grow it on a farm in Telscombe in Sussex, uh -huh. and you create this flower. Bread for Life. Now that's uh -huh. a special flower. Tell us about what it's for. Well, Bread for Life really it grew out of it grew actually out of the soup kitchen that I used to run in in Lewis, which was a soup for Syria sort of kitchen. It was a donation only, so people would we would uh, donate the bread and volunteers would make the soup, and then people would come in and they would pay a donation, yeah. whatever you wanted. Yeah. So some people would put a tenner in the pot, some people would put 10 pence in. And that idea really took off and we had the soup for Syria, then we get the bake for Syria, cook for Syria. In that you were raising money for Syria, so part the of the time. donations were going to Syria. Yeah, but out of that, well, that, was, that sort of planted a little seed of what we could use bread for or flour for. And really from that, I developed a notion that Bread for Life would be a social enterprise. So what happens is Bread for Life donates the profit to those people living on the breadline. So although we still support Syria and we still support Calais, we also help people really close to home. So mm. the Brighton Homeless, Streets Kitchen are a great organization that we support and we still support the people in Calais. And, and that's what Bread for Life is all about, it's helping people on the breadline. Yeah, and it's a good time to talk about charity, isn't it? It's Easter time, you know, bread is, is, has always been right at the heart, hasn't it, mm -hmm. of giving. All the major religions have bread at the heart of them. And, uh, you know, for one really big reason, and that's because bread is the staff of life. It's, it really is what you, you break your fast with bread. The notion of breaking bread and sharing bread with your brother or your sister is central to humanity and there's no getting away from it when in, a, in our culture bread is a symbolic it's a metaphor for all sorts of things which is why bread for life i believe is such a strong powerful symbol and metaphor and you can buy bread for life online at bakerybits.co.uk now in our regular feature mirroring delicious magazine slice of my life put the questionnaire to chef Thea Randall at the Intercontinental Hotel in Park Lane. As someone who trained with the legendary Alice Waters at Chez Panisse in California, I couldn't imagine anyone more inspiring. Well, I've been very lucky. I've been working with some brilliant people and most of them um, women. Um, Alice Waters was an amazing inspiration. I, I was at Chez Panisse for a, a short period of time, but that that whole time there was incredibly inspirational. I mean, also working with a great chef called Paul Bertoli. Um, but Alice is just one of these people that just gets the best out of people. And her inspirational thoughts and ideas are um, why Chapinese is such a brilliant restaurant and still is today. Yeah, I mean, she was really the first to bring that idea of local seasonal, the idea of, you know, isn't it the very short menu based on what's available. Has that really been an influence on your cooking? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think when I went, I think back at the time, I was in Chapinese in 1991 and there were menus being written with the name of the, the, the producer. Uh, it wasn't a very detailed description of the dish, it was very much about what the produce was. And the produce was always absolutely perfect. And all the people that would be delivering to the restaurant would usually be the farmers themselves and wanting to see Alice and getting her feedback on their latest creation. But it was the way she did things. There was a great guy called Steve Sullivan who had, uh, she would get given the opportunity to bake, he's absolutely mad about um, baking bread. And she gave me the opportunity to bake bread uh, using the ovens when the restaurant was closed in the evening. She said, all I want is like six sourdough loaves, 
uh, for the restaurant. So you, can, you know you can make them, but uh, and use whatever you want, the flour, whatever. But you know, make sure I have these six loaves. Uh, so he sort of practiced and tried and tried, and eventually, after you know quite a few months, started to make these absolutely perfect sourdoughs using the ash of the fire to give it that lovely sort of black crust. And uh, he started up a bakery called Acme Bakery, and he actually was the person that invented this, the, the San Francisco sourdough. And just to give you an idea that, you know, how many things that have, that have been created from Shapenese, I mean, like little the micro-leaf salads that you see every day, you get used to in supermarkets, that came from, you know, Alison, a friend of hers, and she gave him a chance to sort of grow these tiny vegetables. And then all these things like beetroots and uh, these tiny, delicious lamb and, and wonderful ingredients. She, she was an inspiration to a lot of a lot of people, yeah. a lot of chefs, and a lot of chefs have opened restaurants on the back of that. And consumers as well. I mean, farmers markets came out oh, of, of I mean, Alice M- Monterey Market is probably the finest farmers market in the world. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I yeah. mean, you know, you go there, and you see what produce you see there is is extraordinary. And it's it's a, it was a kind of, it was a whole a whole sort of revolution of people. I mean, it was kind of quite um, extraordinary inspirational healthy food that was delicious and that's what food is today really yeah, it was about stripping it right back down yeah. to to yeah. the essentials um first foodie memory first foodie memory that's a tough one i I'm, my mother it's not really a memory my mother said the first word i ever said was chocolate and that was because i used to sit in a in a in a cot or a pram and there was a door hatch on the top and it was a kind of one of those sort of catches that made a kind of noise and my first word was and it turned out to be lit, and, and that was because the chocolate was kept in that cupboard. <laughs> but I think my first real food memories, uh, my mum's a brilliant cook, and I remember always her baking. I remember making um, pancakes, little, the little dropped pancakes, and um, jam. And she's always cooked, I mean, always just been a brilliant cook. It's just very natural for her. So it was part of my growing up to sort of the smell of baking cakes or uh, homemade food, and it was just like... You know, I, I was the kid that went to school with the the uh, homemade bread and gorgonzola sandwich, where everyone else had mother's pride with ham and mustard. And I used to go. I was so embarrassed. I used to go around the corner and buy a packet of crisps, so I didn't feel like too, like too much of a weirdo. Particularly with uh, all these kind of plasticky things that other people were putting in their lunch boxes. It didn't make you the most popular boy in school. Though. Not at all. But I think you know, I, 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 it's, I've, it's helped in uh, years to come. But I mean, to the point where my mother would make this sort of sandwich, and then she'd sort of pick an apple from the garden and a bunch of grapes in the greenhouse and that was my pat lunch and it all was okay until a friend came to stay who was very used to very much a plastic uh, pat lunch and when he saw his lunch he was a bit horrified I decided to throw in a curveball by asking him what his superpower would be um, oh my god that's, a, that's the, the hardest question I think I've ever been asked <laughs> um, well I probably quite like like Spider-Man I mean, I quite like to be able to climb up walls and get places quicker because I always find that I'm, I'm late for lots of meetings so uh, being able to uh, have a web and get across London very quickly would be quite handy I think his web was more about saving the world actually well, I know, getting but I mean, to places he gets places very quickly <laughs> Okay, foodie wisdom. In all your years working with all these extraordinary people, one piece of foodie wisdom that you would like to pass on to either a fellow chef or somebody who loves to cook? Um, Always trust your instinct. It's probably the most important thing. I mean, instinct is a very valuable thing, and I think you don't take it seriously enough. And I think when you actually trust your instinct in your cooking, uh, it's, it's the only way to cook, because then you... You know, you know when not to put, add extra things. You know when to stop cooking. I mean, the problem with cooks and young chefs, particularly, is they tend to overdo things because they see there's lots of ingredients in there. They're going to make make be over creative, 
and sometimes less is more. And I think if you can uh, control yourself and you know get the seasoning right, use the right produce, use the right quantities, then trusting your instinct is the best way to do it. And so to the test kitchen, where food editor Jen Bedlow was busy opening some rather interesting baker's boxes to try out some cakes for the magazine's chef step-by-step feature. I asked if she needed a hand. We've come to the test kitchen on quite a good day, actually, Ginny. <laughs> we have been sent some rather delicious-looking um, pastries to try it. Well, we're going to try them, basically, to see if we would like the recipe to feature a chef step-by-step. Step. So how does it, you know, just because people send you a really good-looking little package here doesn't mean that they're going to be named in the magazine or, indeed, no. that you're going to do anything with it at all. No, so what we're looking for here, for chef step-by-step, step, we want something that's got an element of learning and skill, but not too much that you're just going to look at it and think, I'm never going that. to make that. Yeah. Um, and so we've basically identified something we'd like to put in the issue and we've gone to this baker and asked could we have your secret recipe basically so what what is this one it's a soaked brioche a rose syrup soaked brioche Um, and as you can see there's a bit of pistachio going on and obviously got a a beautiful looking rose so why are you only cutting one piece (laughs) (laughs) it looks quite dense and heavy but it's actually Mm. quite nice isn't it it's quite a strong rose flavor actually Mm. quite unusual not too sweet we would need to look at the recipe and look at the processes and if it's going to take you three days then we'd have to really make a judgment call on whether or not anyone's going mm. to do that at home um, and if the flavour you know obviously if something tastes incredible mm. then we're not going to deprive our readers of knowing how, how it was done mm. and we won't say who the bakery is just in case they don't make it to the pages but if they do get through obviously you would then credit the the baker yeah well we, um, the baker would come on our shoot basically um, and run the recipe Mm-hmm. Um, through, um, we would do step-by-step shots to so because this obviously is a, a recipe that would have a little um, extra element of skill mm. or technique needed. So step-by-step photography allows you to really see what what it should look like mm. at every step of the way, um, and then we'd have a lovely introduction um, written by our baker um, and a bit about about them and where you can actually go and just buy their lovely products mm. as well. So it's a lovely showcase for up-and-coming uh, chefs and bakers. Yeah, you um, don't have to be famous. Um, it, if the recipe is, um, if you're the expert of, of a recipe, then, then that's who we want to, to write it. And in case you're wondering who that mystery baker is, I can now tell you that it's Dominique Ansel. And this recipe will indeed be in a future issue of the magazine. Thanks for listening to The Delicious Podcast. Next week, we've got a special extended extra portion with Diana Henry in her very first interview on her brand new book, How to Eat a Peach. And don't forget to let us know what you'd like to hear on the podcast via any of the delicious social media channels. See you next week.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 